Is it fair to say that they don't have a bottling line, they don't have a canning line, but they do have a bagging line? <laughs> it's a little bit like Australian Brews News. <laughs> We've certainly got a bagging line. Thanks to Cryer Malt, local malt for local beer, we come to you live from our studios in Byron Bay. It's Radio Brews News. I'm your host, Pete Mitchum, and joining me in our uh, outside broadcast studio, which is sadly indoors, but you can uh, well, paint the picture for you later, listeners, Matt Kierkegaard and uh, James Atkinson. Matt, morning. Good morning, Prof. James, welcome. Hey, Prof. How are you going? Very well. Very well, thanks, mate. Good. Got a, got a first time too, mate, so we're proud of you. Uh, yes, we are um, the Radio Brews News team um, is, is sans static and uh, any other kind of uh, internet-based uh, um, inadequacies that we often uh, give our listeners. We are all in the same room, huddled around the same table, drinking coffee um, at the, uh, the Beach Bay Motel in Byron Bay. Um, Matt, talk us through our, uh, our lovely day together. Uh, yeah, we were hosted by Stone and Wood, who wanted to show us all of the things that they've been doing up there and a lot of, uh, sort of the developments and their plans. And so uh, it was nice it was nice to have the three of us together in uh, lovely Byron Bay. Uh, the boys also took us through the, um, the Ingrained Foundation, which sounds like a really exciting thing. And I'm, I'm assuming that we'll, uh, we'll link to the show notes uh, with some stuff about that. But basically, um, they've achieved uh, not-for-profit charity status for, for this foundation. Um, and so... Whether it's uh, through staff or partners or um, or their suppliers and what sort of thing, people will be able to uh, have opportunities to, to donate, and that money will be used for sort of. Uh, now, from memory, Jamie was saying uh, charities within the the area that they in, in which they operate. So it's not necessarily going to be confined to to Byron, uh, but certainly sounds um, exciting and, and very very stone and wood. That's right, and you know they, they've always had karma kegs. They've been very active in the community. So yeah, it's great to see that it's not just something that they do on an ad hoc basis. They've actually structured it as a uh, as a formal charitable venture. Um, so and doing a lot of great work. They ask the local community what charities matter to them and get behind it. And I think the figure was around about six hundred thousand dollars. Um, since they started, of which uh, I think a dollar of every hectolitre they produce automatically goes to charity and then through Karma Kegs and other fundraising ventures. And uh, if you sit down and if you go down to the original brew house in Byron Bay, um, they don't run it as a bar. It's a facility where you can do a tour and have a beer um, and you can also make donations there. And they, yeah, so it, it, every little dollar seems to be adding up for them. So it's uh, very exciting. Uh, we also, the three of us um, with the Stone and Wood guys, um, stood on a, a piece of rocky ground that uh, is soon to be the new, sto- yeah, the campus. I think that the, you know that they're moving the original Byron Brewery um, to a different site around the corner on the highway there. Um, a very substantial site it is too, so it's going to be an impressive place. I will say, Prof, you know, one of the things that we remarked about, we saw the Moolumba Brewery that is a very large, impressive, double-sized uh, brewery. Um, and to go from that back to the original Byron Bay Brewery that I remember, you know, they're celebrating 10 years this year. Um, and, you know, we got to go there in the early days when it was just, you know, big plans for what they were going to achieve. And uh, even though the brewery that sits there now is bigger than the brewery that we first walked into, it feels tiny and it just shows how... In the last 10 years, the industry has 
completely changed um, in, in, in what our expectations of craft beer are. Was it really good to get back there and see um, where they where they came from? Yeah, I spoke to Brad yesterday, and I said, "Look, you know, when you when you walk into Mwilliam Bar now, um, with the with the cellar two and cellar three that's just about to be commissioned, um, and the you know the original brew house, uh, all the the fancy kit, and uh, you know the the technical side of, sort of things, uh, do you ever kind of look at that and go, you know, ten, twelve years ago when the brewery was, you know, just a, a thought bubble, did you ever think it would would kind of look like this?" and um, and Brad's response was really interesting because he sort of thought, well, we just we always knew we wanted it to, to grow organically. And while there's been lots of, you know, I guess, areas of the business where they've gone, well, didn't expect that to happen, that, that sort of, you know, we're, we're a bit ahead of our, our business plan in, in that respect or, or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, he, he kind of just always thought it was just going to end up being what it, were, what it would be, mm. yeah, which is really, I, I think, a really interesting way to, to sort of to look at it. Um, yeah, so there we yeah. go. That said, there are three very smart, um, hardworking, dynamic uh, people behind that business. So I don't think it just happened. Um, I don't think anything like that ever just happens. But, you know, it, it was interesting to sit down and, and talk uh, a little bit more about their plans, given some of Jamie's comments last year uh, when Pirate Life um, and, and about it's not the only way to grow. And, you know, they seem to be at, at achieving sustainable growth whilst keeping their basic model you know they, they do have um you know investors but it, it's not uh private equity style investors and so I, I guess they're a little bit lucky but no it's, it's really great to see how their vision that they started 10 years ago has evolved but kept fundamentally uh, true to what they started and really interesting too that any employee once you've been there a year you, you get a, a share uh, offering yeah, you, you get shares, so you essentially become an owner of the company. And uh, uh, I mean, I, I don't know how much of what was said was for publication, but it sounds like you know people have, that have been there for five or six years now have a you know, significant stakeholding in in the business, um, which is very exciting for them. And we've often spoken, James, about you know we've got 450 breweries at the moment. We've got another 150 odd in planning. Um, there's obviously some keen lessons there that people can can take from the stone and wood uh, model um, as such but what do you think are the, the the biggest takeaways for these young players and we, we spoke over breakfast about you know we, we sometimes shake our heads and wonder why is is this particular uh, company getting into you know the craft beer space because obviously it's it, it's crowded enough as it is what's what, what's the biggest threat or the biggest challenge do you think for the these new players coming in and what can they learn from stone and wood for example I think I think with Stone and Wood, the main thing is just that you know the importance of having um, a group of investors who control the business, who have common goals of, of what they want to achieve. Um, and you know we we saw last year where um, if you do have a business where ownership is is split, you know split across a lot of smaller investors, and um, you don't have four guys who can get in a room and and you know make the decision about what they want to do with the business you've got you know a lot of people who are going to want to pull their money out you know more in the short term then i think that can really uh you know shape the direction that the the business goes in and and stone and wood have managed to maintain that share structure where you've got you know four um four guys including the three founders who who you know really control most of the business um so I think that I think it's just you know who who are you taking investment from and and um, you know what are their 
why they what are their expectations and, and, and ambitions are they in it for the same reasons that that you are um, yeah uh, and clearly having a suite of beers that people want to drink um, and that aren't uh, I guess uh, we're talking about niche before Matt and, and sometimes you've got to sort of um, carve your own niche but, but other times and we've, we've, we've I guess the three of us have, have discussed how um, with, with a couple of examples um, just this morning of, of brewers who perhaps started out with uh, you know big bold you know playing in that in that mm. very sort of uh, small space of big alcohol funky beers and all that sort of thing but the reality is uh, who'd have thunk it people want to drink you know sub five percent lagers or you know a 4.2 percent pale ale or a session ale and that sort of thing and and perhaps it's becoming more clear that the um you know the 94 percent or whatever it is that's that's not inverted commas craft um that's what we're going to drag them along with yeah it was interesting um i was chatting with you guys about this morning listening to the kaiju guys on the ale of a time podcast and talking about how successful crush has been um, and Callum made the comment that um, there seems to be this correlation between the lowest alcohol, the lower alcohol products that we release, the more we sell of them. I'm trying to figure out what's going on there. Um, but, you know, that, that beer, from what I can gather, has pretty much transformed um, that business and it's become the biggest thing that they do. I think, though, in that particular instance, and, and, and Moondog's probably the same sort of thing, to cut your teeth or make your bones on funky out there, big beers, um, unapologetically, you know, big beers, um, is probably a good strategy as it's turned out, whether or not they always thought, well, let's let's start big, but then we'll end up doing, you know, 4% lagers and, and pale ales and that sort of thing, or, or we'll, we'll, we'll bring Kaiju Crush in later on down the track when the, you know when we want to actually start making money. Um, but either way, it's worked, out, it's worked out quite well for them. And I just wonder whether, you know, the new players coming into the market, there's, is there not necessarily big alcohol beers, but Matt, is there, have you got to get a certain something? Is that, you know, your, your um, hype formula? D- does that have to come into it uh, before you can then kind of get acceptance? Mate, I, I, I don't think so. You, you need a strong brand, um, but that can take many levels. I, I think... When you look at the people who succeed, they identify a niche in the marketplace and whether that's a, a beer niche that needs filling or a brand niche or you know an appeal niche. Um, and then there are some businesses that are only about brand and they add, I don't think they add any vibrancy or creativity to the industry. They just have seen a group of consumers who they can market um, a beer that adds that is no different from any others but they found a group that they can successfully um, target and you know Prof you and I have been saying we, we've been doing the, a, a podcast in one form or another for you know, seven or eight years and I think we've said over that time that when there are 50 or 60 pale ales they're not all going to find a, a space on every shelf around the country and you know whether it's creating a brand that has a very strong appeal in a limited geographic area um, and so you are the go-to beer for that, or maybe you're a beer that has a, a national appeal. Um, but that's where, when you stand back and look at Stone and Wood 10 years after they started, I remember the very first time, you know, we knew the guys when they were at Matilda Bay before they left, and, you know, it was great excitement when they announced that they were going to build a brewery. And I remember being underwhelmed when I first tried Pacific Ale, or what was then Draft Ale, because I thought, really? You guys left... You know, everyone you know is doing big hoppy beers. And, you know, this smells nice and everything, but it's. But they saw there was a niche. You know, at a time when everyone was going 
well, if, if people love an American parallel, imagine if we did a India parallel and everyone was going big like that and they actually saw that at the end of the day, people like beers that they can drink. And I think I caught up with Jamie yesterday and uh, you know said that the first time I ever heard the expression balance as applied to, to beer um, was him talking about what he had observed going on. And this was pre-Stone and Wood days, but he observed what was going on in the US and how there was this arms race for hops and it was you know hops over anything else. But at the end of the day, and so that was an insight that... I presume that they brought to market through Pacific Ale and they saw that at the end of the day, you want a beer that you can drink, you can enjoy, you can think on it, but then you can also just drink it as a as a lovely, elegant, balanced beer and that's what they created. And in a lot of ways, I think they really changed the Australian beer market with Pacific Ale and you just have to look at the rise of the summer ale category and in, in, in beers that fit in, uh, you know, that Galaxy, Melba, Tropical Fruit, but you know, twenty to twenty-two IBUs in what would otherwise be you know a, a, an Australian ale, and that was something that they they pioneered. They saw a niche, they created it, and now other people are trying to carve out their space within that that niche with their their own brands or their their own offer. And we've we've seen some great beers like um, Bridge Road, um, Beachy Pale, uh, Beachy um, Summer Ale. which is a lovely beer, and it's got a strong brand because of Bridge Road. Um, but yeah, so but it, it, it's been really interesting to see that journey and what they've created. Uh, an interesting sort of synchronicity, uh, also celebrating 10 years this year, is the local tap house in St Kilda. And uh, the guys are doing a, um, I guess, a, a back, back, to, back to where it all began. And they've invited, I think what they tried to do was um, to get as many of the, so when they first opened, they had 20 taps. They're trying to get as many of the brewers who are still sort of brewing to do a a something for for the 10 years um so and i'm pretty sure stone and wood are in amongst that even okay. though i think they started maybe um because i know uh brad sort of helped uh, steve jeffers out um in in laying out you know giving him some, uh, some advice on on the beer side of things for um when they opened um and they would have been uh i think probably rooftop red was one of the was one of the first beers i reckon that was on tap at the tap house I don't. Well, it's a. <laughs> whatever happened to in our, in our new series sponsored by Matilda Bay? We look at whatever happened to. No, where are they now? <laughs> are they now? Uh, yeah, no, a little boutique brewery down in Tasmania, I believe, uh, might still. Have it. Although they don't make rooftop red, unfortunately. But but then Vienna Lagers, you know, um, you know, perhaps there's room for them to to come back, and maybe maybe Stone and Wood, maybe the guys could uh, um, brew a. Something like that for the uh, yeah. for the tap house tent, but yeah, there's a few. I think uh, Simon Walkenhurst from um, Hargraves Hill is brewing a, a beer. I think he's doing um, perhaps like a oh, maybe an Imperial ESB or something. Their ESB would have been one of the early beers, uh, I'm sure. And I, I remember, I, I can't remember how long after it opened that I first went there, um, but I do remember they had a like a German wheat beer. So there was uh, they they still had some imports at that stage. Um, they I'm pretty sure they had. Because uh, it, it wasn't just independent beers in those days. Because I don't think you could open a twenty tap venue in those days and only have well, independent. wasn't even a thing. It was like craft. Well, Steve begrudgingly admits that he did have Carlton Draft on for a little while, just to just to you know, so so as not to scare the horses and to you know to build the just that whole thing. You know, you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. So I think he still wanted to appease the locals who were around, but at the same time, just slowly inoculate them, <laughs> let them know you know we're we're, we're changing. 
So if Carlton Draft was one of the uh, launch beers, are we going to see a special beer from Carlton Draft? Maybe, maybe an un- perhaps an unpasteurised, yeah, Goonbag Draft. Uh, listen, we probably should uh, take a bit of a look at the news. Not a lot has happened since uh, since last week, but we do have a couple of uh, topics to cover. Um, I don't have my laptop in front of me. I don't have my notes. I don't even have my phone open. So I bug it if I can remember. So I, I think we'll just <laughs> throw a heap of stuff at the wall and see what sticks. So we had the uh, round four, is it? Or round, f- I don't know. I've, I've sort of probably lost count. Um, but yeah, part Stone and Wood. Three of episode two. Yeah, so Stone and Wood um, were unsuccessful in their appeal of the uh, previous federal court uh, ruling relating to their, their trademark for Pacific Ale. Um, so now, is this the, the trademark or the... Passing off um, misleading and deceptive conduct, all this sort of stuff. Um, so they're now going to have another day in court later this year where the actual um, battle over their right to register the, the Pacific Ale as a trademark is um, to be heard. So... Yeah, this this one's a saga, and it's probably it could still have you know a few more twists and turns. We could be sitting here um, in a couple of years, maybe still talking about that one. Remember back when the stone and wood thing all began. <laughs> Um, and we should point out too that you know, like it's probably one of the topics that that didn't come up um, in the time that we've been up here as as guests of the of the guys at Stone and Wood. Um, but James, in your uh, article. This week on Bruce News, um, I think there was a quote from Jamie saying it's it's not necessarily it's not about the you know winning it's about standing up for creativity and and I guess you know sort of um, staking their claims and saying well hang on you know this is this is the way things should be so we should point out it's not about oh you know we're just going to lawyers at twenty paces because we we desperately want to to win it's a it's it's more about the principle yeah. <laughs> Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. Uh, Matt, what's uh, what's popped up in your news feed this week? Any any reaction to the um, speaking of sagas, <laughs> the, your rather long chat with uh, with Greg Cook? Yeah, look, I, I think we've sort of done that one to death um, uh, a little bit. But, the, yeah, there's been a lot of feedback. Um, people have weighed in and said that the... The word, the word awkward. The word awkward has featured fairly uh, prominently in, in, in a lot of that feedback, I think. Uh, and the word flogging, I think, is... <laughs> oh, just flogging. Yeah, and, and look, as I've said, like I absolutely take that on the chin. It was a really awkward interview. Um, it was an awkward interview to do. It wasn't what I was expecting, um, given that we'd had a bit of an exchange about the topic on Twitter. That I assume that, you know, a he would have gone back and listened to what he'd said, given I'd referenced that that earlier chat, and I just got the feeling that he hadn't listened to it, um, and wasn't really prepared to talk about the things that we were talking about. Um, and also didn't want to talk about some of the, you know, it, it's, it's probably hard to have some of the things you said, you know, seven or eight years ago held up when you're not 
living those things, but you're still banging a drum about. So anyway, yeah, look, it, it was. I'd take all of that criticism. Well, if it was criticism or just observation, I don't feel that anyone who actually said it was awkward was necessarily being critical. They were just observing just a, a, a truth. Um, but the the one thing that did um, come out of it this week was a lot of uh, emails, and uh, as always, the best emails start with "Don't quote me on this." No names, no pack drill, but yeah, we're, we're perhaps breaking some ground on or, or, or getting somewhere in terms of people looking out for now, I guess, becoming more aware of codes and dates and things. Yeah, and you know, one of the points that people made was, you know, why hold Stone to a higher standard than anyone else? And that is a perfectly good point. But I wasn't holding Stone to any other standard other than the one that they set for themselves. And a lot of people have gone out um, wondering whether I was unfair or whether it was just a Brisbane issue. But I've had a lot of uh, emails and texts this week from people who said, actually, I went out and checked out my local Uncle Dan's or First Choice. And you're right. You know, there wasn't beer that was within the 90 to It was within the Australian code date, but it was outside of the date that Stone says is acceptable. Um, and... You know that has started a conversation, and it, it doesn't end. You know, for me, it doesn't end there because Stone sets a standard that they're not adhering to. But the conversation should be about the number of small local breweries that are canning, for example, and aren't putting brewed on dates, or putting nine months, and some are putting six months. Some so no one ever knows how the beer is, um, and the critical thing about that to my mind is one of the reasons that we love craft beer is the vibrancy of the flavors that it's this wonderful drink that isn't a generic low flavor highly you know you know very well produced but low flavor beer that has a long shelf life um and if you're going to celebrate the best aspects of craft beer which is often the flavor and the creativity but then accept a compromised version of that beer in the marketplace, then I worry, as Greg made the point, that we can go back very quickly if people have enough bad experiences or the beers that they're buying for a lot of money compared to mainstream beers aren't very good because I've been sitting around for a long time. That can undermine a lot of the growth that we've seen in the craft beer industry. Does it help us or does it create a whole new suite of problems to, um, for example, put a, a brewed on or a packed on date rather than a, a used by date and then either link that with a used by date or have to kind of get this whole new education system out there to people to say, okay, if, if it was brewed on the 1st of January, up until what time really can I drink that and for it to still be as the brewer would have intended it? Well, and that's where Stone should be applauded because not necessarily in Australia where they have made a pragmatic decision. You know, they, they put a brood on date and a best before date. Um, and so they are educating the consumer, you know, so they're letting them know that these beers are best fresh. And that is a really powerful tool. And I think Australian brewers should look at doing that themselves. Say, look, our beer is going to be best before. Because the other thing that people get confused about is that it's not a use-by date, which is when something shouldn't be consumed. It's a best before. Um, and a lot of brewers will admit that the best before dates that they put on their beer isn't still an ideal best before date because anything with hops in is where you had that long chat with Charlie, you know, stored at ambient temperatures, your beer, like I think you lose a third for every 10 degrees over um, 20 degrees. And if you're sitting on your beer in a sort of um, bottle shop in Brisbane uh, across summer, you're not getting a very long lifespan out of it. And 
these are all very important conversations because we can either just say, well, the pragmatic reality is if I want my brewery to grow, I need to commit it to this retail chain. But that fundamentally says that I'm happy for people to drink my beer when it's not at its best. Or do we start having this conversation and say, look, we want people to be drinking the beer in the best possible condition, vibrant, fresh, tropical, um, the way that we, we created it. How do we get it there? Do we limit our distribution area for some styles of beer? And some styles of beer will have a longer um, shelf life than others. Do we have to make those hard decisions as an industry? To, to me, it does come down to we can't on one hand say our beer is better because it's got flavour, and on the other hand say, but we don't really give enough shit about the flavour that we don't care that it's been sitting on a shelf for nine months. Um, and, and there's some hard conversations that the industry needs to have. Uh, some of those conversations might take place in the um, the trade hub. At, the trade um, hub at, uh, yeah, yeah, we're having a conversation about this as part of uh, Good Beer Week. Um, I think tickets will be on sale if they're not already. Um, it, it'll be in the program on Wednesday I think the 16th of May, um, we are going to be talking about what brewers need to do to create better beer for the retail distribution channel, but then also speak to retailers about, you know, maybe they need to hear what they need to do to make sure that the beer that they're selling is in better condition. So we've got representatives from, I guess, from the technical, the brewing side, from the retail side, um, from logistics as well. Uh, Exactly, yeah. So we're going to have a really good panel, probably not quite at the stage where we've locked in the names yet, but it will be a really high power um, panel of people uh, to sort of talk about some of these issues. Get your tickets, book early folks, don't miss out. Uh, any other news that we can cover off in what's been a reasonably quiet week, it's it's fair to say? Well, in, in, in other trademark news, the uh, colour of beer has been trademarked or has, there's been an application and uh, apparently... Is this like Mary Kay pink and Cadbury purple or like a, a certain amber has been trademarked or is it the actual term the colour of beer the term the colour of beer but apparently the by, el- one, of, by one of the elder statesmen of, of craft beer in Australia who was that man well, hang on let's let's just give the listeners if we said the elder statesman the elder or one of one of the elder, one of the elder statesman. statesmen of craft beer um, so I'll just get everyone to, to kind of get a an image in their head of who who they think you know, narrow it down to say five or six make it ten and you still won't get it um, Matt, who, who is the elder statesman of craft beer that uh, has is trademarking the term the colour of beer? Uh, East Ninth Brewing Company, which I'm sure is front of everyone's mind when it came down to... Is it fair to say that they don't have a bottling line, they don't have a canning line, but they do have a bagging line? <laughs> it's a little bit like Australian Brews News. <laughs> We've certainly got a bagging line, but uh, yeah, no, look, again, a great example going back to when we're talking about finding a niche and marketing it, you know, like East Ninth with Dos Blocos and a whole lot of very style-driven beers, they've they've seen niches that they can play to, there's, you know, a certain demographic who, and they've created products that they've marketed very well to that. They add absolutely nothing to the um, dynamism of the of the brewing industry they don't um, I, I, I would argue that they don't create anything at all that's new or different they have just found a way to market very successfully beers that other people have conceived of um, and I mean that that's genius on one hand um, and it, it's a real skill but um, and they've got a lot of publicity for their, their, their shtick about the colour of beer but it, it just ultimately adds nothing to the to the beer landscape 
I'm amazed that a brewery that uh, packages their beer in paper bags um, didn't then take umbrage at, at Hobo when they when they bought their beers out. Isn't that like a trademark infringement? Hang on, we, we, we own that space. So, yeah, watch this space. Let's, let's see what happens uh, along there. Any other uh, news? And do we have anything from the mailbag this week, Matt? Oh, no, because all of those started with, don't quote me on this, uh, just between you and me, uh, not for publication. Go read the Facebook comments and the uh, website comments about the, the Greg Cook interview and hear how underwhelmed everyone was by, uh, uh, by my, well, as I say, is it flogging a dead horse or is it tenacity? Um, you certainly left no stone unturned, Matt. <laughs> Nice use of the word stone there, James. Now, something, uh, it's Thursday, Friday morning um, when we're recording this and uh, I'm dropping you guys at the airport and heading back to Brisbane to um, go. Apparently, the Queensland government is announcing a craft beer strategy or what could potentially be a strategy to create a strategy for craft beer. Um, So I, I, I don't know very much about that at all yet, but... Watch this space. It sounds like uh, you know the Queensland government has uh, listened to the to the resounding lack of applause over Brewdog. Um, We've listened and we're sorry, <laughs> and we're fixing it. But uh, yeah, and again, like that's not a dig at Brewdog, but I, I think the Queensland government thought that they were going to get all sorts of applause when they announced that Brewdog was coming to Brisbane. Um, and didn't because they've done up until now nothing for the uh, local industry. We're going to hear at two o'clock today what their plan is for the for the craft beer industry, and that's a really really exciting um, you know d- potential development if, if it's more than just uh, the, the government talk fest. Talk fest, yeah. But it's nice to know that um, you know Radio Brews News' very own Matt Kirkegaard has been summoned to the castle. <laughs> To uh, appear before the Queen, and uh, is the is the Premier going to be there, or is it is, is this a like Minister Dick um, Cameron Dick will be there, who's the Innovation and Manufacturing Minister? Um, the when I spoke to the department yesterday, they manufacturing is one of their key industry development strategies, and beer falls into manufacturing, which again is a little bit sad when you sort of the wine industry, uh, and, and I've written a. Um, opinion piece for that'll come out by the time this comes out I think about that Um, you know that the the beer industry has really suffered um, in terms of its lobbying capability because it has always been seen as a blokey by the six-pack you know industrial um, product and the big brewers have really contributed to that with highly centralized uh, breweries and very you know, lowest common denominator marketing, that it makes it very hard to elevate the, the, the beer as something that government should take seriously. Whereas when you think of wineries, you think of misty morning sunrises and, you know, urban sophisticates uh, raising their redels, um, which is a completely different mindset to a couple of, uh, you know, buff heads at the cricket with half watermelons on their head making the biggest, uh, you know, plastic cup snake that they can, which is sometimes the image associated with beer. And, it is a really important thing that we do um, by elevating, you know, but, and it's not making it stuffy, it's not making it sort of pretentious or wanky, but showing that beer is more than just a manufactured product. And the hop industry in Australia would be dead if it was left to commodity beers because we weren't good at making cost-effective commodity hops. But there has been you know, something like $25 million investment um, by Hop Products Australia in putting new hops under trellis. We have record acreages of hops in Australia 
and it's a big export success story. Um, we make some of the best malting barley in the world, but there has been a lot of pressure on you know making commodity barleys for mainstream beer, and then you've got growers like Voyager Malt that are setting up high value uh, facilities to cater to the craft beer industry. Um, and the figures from the IBA, so this is a bit of a, a soapbox, isn't it? But uh, we've got the figures from the IBA that show that half a job is created for every million litres of beer that's produced by one of the big breweries, and there are 40 jobs created to produce the same amount of beer in the craft beer industry. So it's a major employment story. Um, and unlike wineries, which are clustered around the grape-growing regions, breweries can be anywhere in the country because the ingredients are portable um, and the beer should be consumed fresh and local. And, and that's an incredibly powerful story that the brewing industry needs to be getting out and talking as part of its lobbying efforts. So that's... And, and I guess the whole, the, the Brewdog story, um, your um, piece that you, the opinion piece that you wrote, the you got some um, uh, local radio coverage and that sort of thing which then led to more opinion pieces which then went national and that sort of in no small way has contributed to I guess the government being becoming aware that oh, okay yeah with this brewdog thing we thought we were kicking goals and hitting sixes maybe we need to uh, you know reassess our, our strategy and see what we can do for for local so well done Matt for um for, for getting that ball rolling oh Matt it wasn't me and I mean like I'm very um, averse to expressing my opinion as you know <laughs> No, look, but again, like, sorry. Um, it's, it's been a long time coming. A lot of brewers who who have done the thing. It's just you know, us as communicators or as journalists um, have the ability to sort of reach, take that message out a little bit wider. But ultimately, it's it's not our work. We're just communicating other people's deeds, and it's the really exciting work that the Brisbane brewing scene has done that has really given something that a shot a spotlight can be shone on. So, uh, yeah, no, it's just really exciting, and hopefully something actually does come of it. And we can assume, James, that um, you'll be penning some pieces um, if Matt's allowed to, you know, bring any information out um, from the from the Queensland Government meeting. Um, we'll direct our listeners to go to, head to the Australian Brewers News website for updates. Otherwise, we'll cover it next week in Radio Brewers News in our, um, in our weekly news bit. Um, Gents, I don't think there's much else to cover. I think we probably should no, well, head towards the uh, airport and get ourselves back home. Some of the feedback that I was given uh, yesterday was that it was really great that we split the podcast into Beers of Conversation and Radio Brews News, but what happened to Radio Brews News shortening? Because uh, I think Jamie Cook described it as a cell, you know, like it split and then grew. And uh, so, yeah, we, we, we are... I like to think of it more as an amoeba. I think it's got a, a little bit more character than a cell. A yeast. So, <laughs> sometimes very wild. Uh, well, listen, thank you very much to uh, all of you for listening along. Thank you very much to all our sponsors who make Radio Brews News possible. Um, as I say, get over to AustralianBrewsNews.com. Uh, are we dot au or we just dot com? Matt. dot com dot au. dot com dot au. There you go. So I don't, I don't, I don't read it much. No, I do, but it's just always there. I don't actually have to type it in. It's just automatic. Um, for, uh, to keep uh, up to date with all the um, views, news and opinion on the Australian beer scene. Um, thanks very much for joining us and we shall see you all next week.
and we're out.